Hello folks, this is Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech and take a peek at the secrets to their excellence. I'm your host Manoj Rao and today my guest is none other than Greg Crow Hartman. Greg is one of the leading Linux kernel developers and maintainers. To anyone hacking the Linux kernel, he's simply put Mr. Linux device drivers. He has been around in the open source community since the earliest days of Linux. Greg is a fellow at the Linux Foundation. His work includes development and or maintenance of many of the subsystems in the Linux kernel including USB device driver, TTY layer, stable branch of the Linux kernel, drivers core, debug fs, kref, kobject, sysfs, the staging area of the device drivers. He has co-authored the most popular device drivers book ever written, aptly named Linux device drivers. He has authored Linux kernel in a nutshell. We talk about so many different topics, how he got into Linux kernel development, what his system is to write great code, how he automates to handle many pain points of his workflow, uh, how he successfully handles close to a thousand emails every day. Uh, he shares some of his recipes and scripts uh, that make him look superhuman to outsiders. We talk about what a good model for development of powerful projects look like. how to lead projects that scale to hundreds or even thousands of developers what he reads uh, what he recommends of course and many many more aspects of his life and thought process so let's welcome greg crow hartman all right welcome greg hi really happy to have you here So let's first start off with introducing you. If you ran into somebody at a party and they don't quite know what you do, how do you introduce yourself? Right. So there's an easy one. I say I'm a programmer, and they say, "What do you do?" And I say, "Have you heard of Linux?" And usually now, now it's very nice. They say, "Yeah." I say, "Oh, I'm one of those people to do that. I'm I do stuff. I make your mouse work." Hmm. And they're like, "Oh, okay. I understand that." Okay. <laughs> so that that usually is the the that's a party discussion. It goes from there. And depends on how much they know about Linux, I can talk more about that. It's a lot better these days. A lot more people know what it is and I can talk about other things I do from there, but yeah, that's usually given that it runs on billion plus at least billion uh, machines worldwide now. Yeah, we yeah, I mean like I joke we we used to joke, "Hey, we're going to rule the world, take over world domination." Yes. And we did. Yes. So yeah, so um it's everywhere. It runs the air traffic control, the stock markets of all the world, everything. It's kind of scary. Well, it is scary. And should I say congratulations or well done? <laughs> or anyway, so that's awesome. Uh, and I have been a long time Linux user and I've been a long time Linux proponent. You can pick literally any of my friends and they would be uh they would probably roll their eyes and say, "Ah, this guy which is Linux stuff." And long before Linux was a thing. But I did not start earlier than you did probably. First of all, when Linus probably released his uh, source code, uh, where were you? What what was your time frame so in terms I, of like what you were doing in life? So we're the same age, Linus and I. I think mm-hmm. within a year. So we went to university at the same time. Um, he ended up actually getting a master's. I squeaked out with a bachelor's. Um, I think he was still in school when I graduated. So I was off working at a company doing embedded work as a programmer. So I missed the announcement on the internet. I didn't see that. Um a few years later at a different company um we were using Oracle on Sco on a Sco machine an x86 machine and it was horrible it worked okay and then um Linux press um Oracle came out with a Linux version 
And we're like, hey, let's try this. So we took a server that we had, threw it on there, and it, the same exact hardware worked wonderfully. We're like, this is amazing. This is crazy. So the problem is the operating system, not, it's not Oracle. We didn't blame Oracle for that. Um, but we didn't have any support for it, so we couldn't use it in our product. So we couldn't use it. Which but, version was this in? I don't know what it was. It was in the .9 days. Um, and I took um, Linux home. I bought a, I had a version of Caldera. So I rebuilt the kernel. Took a day <laughs> on an old machine. Um, my brother-in-law was living with us at the time, too. And um, we both messed around with it a little bit. And I put it on my own machine. So I had a dual boot machine, and I started using it for a while. Um, but I never contributed back. For that was many, many years later, I started contributing. But I started using it. It was fun. So I started using it. Awesome. That was like early, that was mid-90s. Mid-90s. Yeah, that's about the time I think he released like the first version. Yeah, so we're whenever Oracle came out with their first release. Right. So that's good. Right. So you said you were a programmer before that. Uh, who's, it sounds like you liked messing around with new things. So what was your background before that in the sense you were full-time embedded programmer? Yeah, so out of college, I was a kid. Um, I was a programmer when I was a kid. My parents bought a computer. I messed around with it. But then, yeah, college, I ended up with a computer science degree because I liked programming. Um, and I was working for a Bedit company. So oh. I, we did printers. So barcode scanners, the barcode tags, the tags for the barcode printers for um, your luggage at airlines. That's what we did. Printers like that. Nice. These were, I'm guessing, huge machines with really small memory. No, it wasn't that bad. There was, um, it was a 60, we were using an i960, which was a 32-bit processor, which was cool. We had some assembly language stuff. We had some, a bunch of C code. I, I got um, actually free type. I got... Um, free type up and running in it because we had a printer. It was a dot matrix. It was a thermal thermal printer. So we had a lot of, we had, for the time, it was really powerful little things. So mm -hmm. it was fun. 32-bit uh, processors. We had some 16-bit processors. And then I programmed 8-bit processors. And uh, I was doing USB firmware for mm -hmm. the device. And I had, we had a, there's one processor that has one and a half registers. Yeah. It's an 8-bit processor. <laughs> so you have a one 8-bit register and a 4-bit register. Wow. That's all you get. Um, but you can do a mouse. You can do a USB mouse with that. You just get the pos X and Y. Yeah, it's you just barely, yeah, you can read some little A to Ds and stuff like that. Oh. So, I mean, USB, when it came out, was meant to be so you can make a, a mouse under a dollar. So that's why the USB protocol looks the way it is. And that was, so I was doing USB firmware, and that's how I got into Linux development because I had to test my firmware on all devices. Or I wanted to test it on all operating systems. And... Um, Linux didn't have really a USB subsystem at all in the kernel. Right. There was a big one outside the kernel that was hairy and messy, and um, the developer was a student from Spain, and he was working on it on his own. And then Linus said, hey, he was working for Transmeta. Here's a, here's a OHCI, yeah, here's a USB 1 controller driver. Let's go from here. And people jumped on it. It barely worked, but you put something out small, you can put something out that's huge. And that, I learned that lesson very early there. And then I was like, hey, I can contribute here, and I found a little bug fix. And he took it. It's like, hey, this is great. So then you go from there. And um, that was fun. Um, yeah, so I submitted a few patches, got that in. And then um, I read the Linux device drivers book because I was doing embedded work. And my wife um, and daughter, who was one at the time, were going away to visit a friend. She's like, hey, you should, you should ride a driver this weekend. You've always talked about that. I'm going to be gone. No distractions. I was like, okay, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. And I did. I wrote a driver for a USB to serial device that I had. And I submitted it. And I was like, instantly, I swear instantly, I got Feedback that said, this is wrong, this is wrong. <laughs> what about SMP? I'm like, what do you mean SMP? I don't even know what multiprocessor stuff is. And it was amazing, because I know as a programmer, I always wanted to learn from others and get better at it. And this is the best review, best way of reviewing your stuff out there that there is. Yeah. And um, you're putting your stuff out there with your name on it. It's, it's scary, but you have to let go of your ego. And if you let go of your ego in that way, everybody's trying to help you out. 
and it was fun. It was fun. So I like, submitted that and so this grew was from the them. driver for uh, a USB to serial. I think it was the um, handspring visor, old Palm Pilot like device. Right, it was right. USB. So I got oh. that working. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that grew into a USB to serial subsystem. I wrote a few drivers as a consultant for some companies that wanted it. And then um, I found um, there's a job offer in Portland, Oregon. I was living outside of Portland. Um, and I realized that more people were using the stuff I wrote for free than anything I ever got paid for. Because my companies, they didn't do that well that I worked for. So I took But they were a, okay with you probably part-time working outside. Yeah. Yeah, and they didn't really know. Okay. But they did know. We were using Linux internally to test stuff out. And we were just starting to actually look at using Linux on a, inside a barcode scanner at the time, too. So I was kind of looking at that. Um, yeah, then I left. That's awesome. But I got to do full-time Linux work. You would say your first interaction in terms of like Linux software community was with via a USB driver. With a USB driver, yeah. But since then, I, I can't even list the subsystems or all the aspects of Linux that you have not touched, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, let's list it out. Let's try it. Okay. All right, so let's see. What do I have? So I helped write the driver core with Pat Michelle. Yes. Um, I was at IBM at the time. He was across the street at OSDL, and that was a fun time during the two five kernel days. So I ended up maintaining driver core, SysFS. Um, I now maintain the TTY layer and serial port drivers um, layer because nobody else wanted to do that. <laughs> what else? So other driver stuff, miscellaneous drivers, character drivers, um, USB, of course. I've given some subsystems away. I used to maintain PCI and I2C. Staging. Staging. Uh, staging is where all the crappy drivers come in and people <laughs> learn how to clean things up and get it working, so that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I made the joke last night at the party we were talking. You, you know you're in trouble when people send you patches and you're like, no, 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 send them to the maintainer. And they write back and says, no, you are the maintainer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I maintain a lot of different subsystems. And, yes. um, and, and among other that. things, you're also responsible for releases. Yeah, I do the stable kernel releases now. So, yeah. So, we started that about a decade ago um, that we would do a stable. I mean, Linus's tree, um, it releases every three three to two and a half months. But during that period of time, you want to have a kernel that has those fixes because you mess up and things like that. So, I maintain the stable kernel trees. Okay. Okay. So, for people who are not exactly familiar with the uh, Linux model for release of the kernels, uh, Linux, although he's the final release bottleneck point at this point. <laughs> well, he's, uh, the, he's the one that we all implicitly agree is the one that's releasing the kernels, and we all rebase on his and sync up with him. Right. If you look at the way Git works, anybody, everybody has a tree. We have thousands of forks, right. but we just happen to all sync up on him because mm-hmm. we trust his judgment and whatnot, and he trusts other people's judgment. It's like a pyramid of, it's a web of trust. So, I mean, it's a web. Yeah, so, um, I mean, that's the way kernel development is. It's interesting. Um, we come to these conferences, um, we meet people, it's a human interaction issue. Um, I don't always, like some people's patches, I will just take automatically, mm. no matter what. Um, I glance at them and whatnot, and I trust that they're good developers. They'll get things right. I trust, not necessarily that they always got it right, but they'll be there to fix it when they get it wrong. Right. And that's a really important thing, because I can't maintain all that stuff. I'm not responsible for that stuff. Or I can't be the only one on the hook for that. And so I trust... People blow me, Linus trusts people blow him. Mm-hmm. It's just a tree that way, and that's the way the development works. And it's just human interactions. It's really interesting that way. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how it, it has been able to scale so much. There have been minor tweaks or major tweaks as well along the way. Uh, something that uh, Linux uh, did as a community uh, for email, right? All you did was accept only text-based emails. Do away with basically any kind of phishing, spamming, and whatnot. So again, that's just a small aspect of 
many things that Linux has adopted over the years that has allowed it to scale apart from the technical aspects of mm-hmm. things. So, like you said, the human interaction point. So, very, very important point. Uh, so, it's so, you know, each developer builds his network of trust mm-hmm. over time. And that has scaled tremendously well. But there has got to be a point where, you know, since you maintain so many subsystems, how do you manage time truly? Like, I've uh, not agree with this, but I don't think you have slipped up on email ever. Uh, you, I've seen you, you respond very diligently on newbies, which is, we'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, of course, you're super active on the LKML, uh, the main kernel thread, with all the other developers probably pinging you directly. And you're on the IRC, uh, reasonably active there yep. as well, <laughs> among other things. So, uh, uh, how do you how do you manage your 24 hours? I hope you still get only 24 I do, hours. Yes, yes. I sit, and I sleep, and I have a family. I get to work from home, so I don't have to commute, which is nice, except when coming to tra- conferences. IRC is a bad habit. I'll get sick of it and quit it for a month or two, and then get back. Um, there's IRC for the, like the kernel newbies, and then there's a there's a kernel channel for a number of us that we can talk and basically just we get to vent to each other. It's mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, but it's time management and things have grown over the time years. So when I say I, man, I maintain a lot of these subsystems, um, it all it means is I'm handling the patches. I'm not necessarily doing new development. So like TTY and Serial, I will review patches, but I rely on other people to um, review them also, and I'll accept them and merge them and get them through the proper trees and then push them off to Linus at the right time. And handle bug reports and little simple things like that. But you, it's just time management. So I average, I looked, um, I think I get about 1,000 emails a day that I need to do something with. Wow. That isn't a mailing, that isn't Linux kernel mailing list. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's most of it's just delete or file away. And then I come back to it um, at a certain time saying, okay, I'm going to go through USB patches right now. And I just churn through them all. Or I'm going to go through staging patches. And then I'm like, oh, crap, here it goes. 500 patches. And the interesting thing about patches is I, I looked one day, it's about one, I only accept about one third of what I get. So it takes, a, so you look at the rate of change of how fast the kernel is going, we're going almost nine patches an hour. Um, so two thirds, it's really, there's two thirds more development happening than that. Um, so yeah, so it's a lot of happening. So it's time management, email, good email skills, um, good tools. You can't use a GUI um, email client. You might be able to use Evolution. Um, I use Mutt. I have a lot of things scripted. Um, a lot of things like with the stable kernel stuff, I have scripts behind it. When a patch lands in Linus's tree that needs to go to a stable kernel, I'll get an email. I file that away, and then I can just hit a key on my keyboard, and it applies to all the kernels that I'm maintaining at the time. And then um, it'll go off and test build on, a, on my build server and see it. So I can automate, and then it'll email the emails out, and I applied it and things like that. So a lot of it's automated that way. Um, so, but I still do review them all. Um, but yeah, it's just time management that way. We'll definitely come back to the details of, of some of these shortcuts that you have uh, seemingly giving you magical superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, honestly, each one of these subsystems alone can be a legitimate full-time job for, for, for anybody. Do you allocate time for each subsystem that you manage or do you just go based on email or how do you split your work? Do you do it consciously even? Yeah, I, I have. I, I've done some. So some subsystems, I will be honest, I pay attention to more than others. <laughs> so USB, I, I, it's like my baby there. I've been doing it for so long. Um, I do pay more attention to that. And I do. I don't do new development as one of the maintainers or one of the developers just asked me yesterday. He's like, you haven't written patch in a long time. I'm like, yeah. But I do watch that. I manage that much more closer than other subsystems. I do try and catch up with all the patches for each kernel release and make sure I handle them in a proper amount of time. 
But um, yeah, and I file things away. So I'm like, I'm not going to end up doing patches today. I'll just file them off into a mailbox. Mm-hmm. And then like once a week, I'll sync up whatever. And then during this merge window we have, uh, we're not allowed to add new patches to the tree. It's a two-week merge window. Um, that's actually a little bit of my vacation time. <laughs> so I can relax. I don't have to. I can just file patches away. I can create new patches. I wrote a patch during one of the sessions today. Mm-hmm. Um, I can re- I can recharge a little bit and focus on other things. And just fun testing it. I'll test the cleanest kernels at the time and make sure everything's going okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's time management that way. Um, I don't make a focus. Sometimes I'll say, okay, I'll pay attention to staging more. There's the outreachy program is going on right now, the application process. And that process involves... Uh, sending patches to the staging tree to learn how to do the process. So okay. those I try and pay attention to like within a day or two. Okay, so for those who are not quite aware of Outreachy program, can you just give a one-liner? Oh, there's a, it's an internship program for people of uh, minority backgrounds that are um, looking to get into kernel development, or it's also for Mozilla, GNOME, lots of different projects offer um, interns. And they get it's like the Google Summer of Code. They get paid six months um, worth of work. They get paid for it. Um, I've been a mentor for it a number of times. Um, I don't really have the time now to be a mentor, but I'm still involved in the application process. So I do the review for the application processes for the patches that they're sending in. And a lot of it's just setting up your email client properly the way I was sending patches the wrong way. We have a lot of it, most all of it documented, but still takes some hand-holding at times. So that I'm involved, so that's going to be a busy month. Of, I'll do staging patches every other day, though. Mm-hmm. I'll pay attention. And that's actually nice because it won't be a huge number when I get around to it after two weeks and I'm staring at 500, I got to right. turn through right. <laughs> and then burns me out so, <laughs> for that day. So do you guys store away any design specific discussions for the merge window period? For design, I mean, the interesting thing is like kernel doesn't, we don't have a roadmap, right? Mm-hmm. We just react to what is sent to us. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't work for a company anymore. I work for Linux Foundation so I can do this full time and pay attention to community stuff and review. Um, but I'm just reacting to what other people send me. Hmm. So I will, sometimes I'll carve out and say, okay, today, this is a new subsystem. I'm going to spend a couple hours and review their new patches because hmm. it's a new subsystem. I know the common ways you mess with the driver core or you interact with the driver core. So let's spend some time and provide some good review. So I do carve out that. But then, but having to carve that out is hard. There's a subsystem that's right now trying to move out of staging into the real kernel. And I'm like, hey, um, during this merge window, I will, and when I get home after this conference, I'll take a half a day, review your code again, and look at that. Nice. Or maybe I'll do it on the flight back. That's actually really <laughs> nice. But now there's Wi-Fi in the plane, so I get distracted and read email. I shouldn't be. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Right. I got I got several of your emails when you were on the flight. <laughs> when I was on the flight, like, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think you got to sleep. No. Uh, you know, uh, just going back to the community and how how people interact. Obviously, Linux, in my opinion, uh, probably attracts the smartest engineers in the world. And all of them basically work for free, effectively just work out of pure desire to either become better or, you know. No, a, their- but no, almost nobody works for free. We're all paid for it. All the patches. So, I mean, I've been tracking who contributes to the kernel and where they work for. So, it's really, really hard not to get paid to do kernel development. It has to be a conscious decision. Because the joke was you get five patches in the kernel, you get a job. Now, the joke isn't necessarily that because if you can't get five spelling fix changes in the kernel. Mm -hmm. But five, I mean, ten good patches, you will get a job up. I mean, there's so much skills out there. Um, So, most everybody's doing work on behalf of a company. Or they're maintaining it, or they know what they want to do, and they're sponsored by the company. And, but almost everybody is getting paid for this work. 
So it is an altruistic thing. It hasn't been altruistic for the past 15 years. Hmm. We all get paid for this because it's, uh, it's a value for all these companies that rely on Linux and do this type of stuff. When I was at SUSE and worked on the kernel team there, we had a rule of 20% of your time had to be upstream. You had to work it. And that was good for so then you could just do whatever you want. And usually it was maintaining the subsystems you're responsible for. Um, so companies do sponsor people that way a lot. I and see. Red Hat has some rules like that too. Red Hat has some positions where it's 100% upstream, hmm. which is great. And it helps them out and things like that. So we're all getting paid. So right. <laughs> it is that way. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, especially John's presentation from yesterday at the Plumbus conference uh, highlighted that. But he also highlighted something that was also important for Linux to scale further, even now, maintainers. Yeah, maintainers have always been. I, he put a quote up me there for me. And I was like, oh, I remember saying that. It was 2006. I said, we need more maintainers mm -hmm. and time for that. It's hard. So what is your uh, opinion in terms of how maintenance, amount of maintenance work has changed over the years? I'm pretty sure you'll have to deal with more number of patches uh, with Linux getting more developers? Well, it depends on the subsystem, right? And it depends on the area. There's lots of little tiny areas that, um, yeah, you get like 10, 15 patches maybe. Or if nothing's going on, you just need to make sure things work. Or it's not a lot. So if you're a maintainer of a tiny subsystem, you can be one if you submitted the original code. Mm -hmm. But if you're under one that's like doing under heavy development or heavy churn, yeah, it's going to take more work. Um, even look at SCSI, which has been around for forever. There's still, we need an active maintainer. Um, to keep up with the new changes and with the APIs and new uses. So there is work. It does take time. And more companies should pay for their people to do that. It's, it's a hard sell for a company because it doesn't look like an active, um, active return on investment there. Um, I'd argue, like at SUSE, we did that because it was a really good return on investment because then those people know the subsystem. They know what's going on when your customer has problems. They know how to fix it. They know what's going on and who to talk to. Mm -hmm. And it's also they know, um, in a way, if you want to make changes, they know the best way to make for you. And you also have a pain. You also see how people use your stuff, and it works out well that way. So, um, But it's a different model. I mean, at IBM, we were um, somebody... Um, started out and ended up taking over a tiny little subsystem. And then he switched to a different position within the company. You move around. And um, we're like, no, wait, wait, wait. He still has to maintain the old stuff. Because <laughs> main maintenance follows the person and not necessarily the job description. So companies had to realize, and IBM realized really early, that they had to carve that out and say, okay, you're still responsible for that old stuff. You can do that as part of your official job. And here's your other stuff you have to do. Mm -hmm. But it's, so they have to make allowances for that. But it's very different than it used to be. But it also lets us keep a body of knowledge that other operating systems and companies don't have. Because I've been doing USB for since the 90s. Dave Miller's been doing um, networking for forever. Um, when you work at a big company, you traditionally move around to different positions. You work on different things, um, which is great for an individual. But for the stored body of knowledge, it really isn't that good because hmm. you don't know how to do this stuff. I always joke when Microsoft came out with um, uh, USB 3.0 support. They had this big article saying, we had brand new developers, and we attacked this from a brand new way, and we did all this work. It's like, oh, that's great. Yeah, we have <laughs> how many years' experience? We had one awesome developer, Sarah Sharp, who knew USB really well, and she implemented everything for USB 3.0, and it beat Microsoft hands down. <laughs> but <laughs> it was not that bad to Microsoft, but it's like the, the depth of knowledge is really important mm. to a project. I mean, we have a depth of knowledge in Linux. That's huge. People move companies and they still take that maintainership. We always we see people at um, these conferences like, oh, you work for so-and-so now. But you're still doing the same thing. We're still seeing these people. They're still involved. And that's really unique to Linux. And that hasn't happened before hmm. to other operating systems, which is cool. So it's, it's 
amazing that way. So we can say you we have people with much more experience that can resolve problems, know what's going on, and things like that. Right. Just looking out into the near future, obviously we'll need more uh, experts, more expertise to be shared among new maintainers, new developers. And yeah. again, uh, going back to John's uh, slides, he, he touched upon it a little bit. But what would you think is the best way forward to do that specifically? Of course, we are attracting more developers, but in order to, you know, is, is passion alone the driving factor or what? Yeah, so, yeah, picking a maintainer. A maintainer is a hard job. It's not a developer. It's like switching from a developer to a manager at a company. It's a different set of skills. And John pointed out, Neil Brown said, um, a maintainer, you become a maintainer because you're bad at the skill of saying no, <laughs> which a maintainer really need, does need to say no. And it, But it's hard. It's a different thing because you want to do this stuff. And um, we do have the problem about uh, maintainers. We have the problem of, the problem of also of getting rid of maintainers who aren't doing their job. Hmm. And um, that's a really difficult place because it's, it's people or it's squishy. It's like we're bags of water. It's not logical. Hmm. Um, and if you're not doing a good job, but you really want to, but you're now your employer isn't having you let you do that at all. So you kind of trickle along and do maintainer or do patches, but people get frustrated with you. And how do you resolve that? And that's been our biggest problem over the years is how do you handle maintainers who aren't doing their job? Or how do you even set the role and responsibility of what the jobs are? John had a great list of here's all the things that he thinks maintainers should do. I was like, wow, that's right. Um, Dan Williams, who works at Intel um, years ago, not that long ago, um, at the Kernel Summit, he said, we need to have a list of responsibilities that a maintainer is going to agree to. Like, we're going to respond to patches and so long. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And it kind of didn't go very far. I think people got hung up on the, oh, no, you're telling me what to do as a maintainer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's time we revisit that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to talk to Dan again. Um, he's a maintainer of NVMe, I think, mm -hmm. and some other subsystems. Um, he had a great idea with that. And we need, to, we need to have a little bit more of a social construct or contract. Mm -hmm. of what a maintainer, but that gives people an idea of what the, if they want to be a maintainer. What they're signing up for. Yeah, what they're signing up for. Oh, here's the skills, and here's how we do that. And um, we need to mentor our maintainers, right? Right, right. <laughs> and right. figure that out a little bit better. Uh, I mean, so, that's, yeah, John's talk was great. I mean, as a kernel development community, we do revisit. We try and bring up what are we doing wrong every year and how to re revise it and tweak it over the years. And we do it. And being self-reflective is very important. Self-critical is really important. So I know he was a little nervous that people were going to get, oh, you're criticizing us. Mm. But no, that's good. I was like, this is what we need. Mm -hmm. One of the key highlights of Linux community is there is a lot of feedback over the email and some of the, the allegations, the words are pretty harsh, etc. But at the end of it, it is purely based on the output that you're producing over the email is one side of the story. Some mm -hmm. people argue that, hey, it's just purely based on your patch or, or your work. And the others, the softer side of things, like, hey, you, you need to tone it down. So what what is your opinion? <laughs> yeah, so I my personal opinion is always criticize code, never criticize a person. Hmm. And that's a, a good thing. Um, my wife says, as far as child reeling, you need to have the, um, the, the sandwich. You know, praise, criticize, praise, <laughs> as far as dealing with your children that way. Um, and that's a good way to, to do all things. Um, the, the funny thing about people's the complaints about kernel development is um, we do it all in public. So everybody sees everything's going on. Um, when Linus yells at people, the only reason he'll yell at us is we have one really strong rule in the kernels. We will not break user space, something that works. And if we do it accidentally, oops, we fix it. No problem. We go on. Linus only yells at you when you knowingly violate that rule. And you start arguing about it. And But he's cursing at you. Um, 
and yelling at you as a friend. I mean, we know each other. We've known each. Everybody's known each other for a decade. We drank beers with each other. Um, I'd argue that it's like a professional um, baseball team. Mm-hmm. The manager's if a first baseman does something stupid, the manager's going to curse at him and say, "Hey, you idiot! You did this wrong, wrong, wrong." Yeah, that's fine. You take that in the in the context of which is given. You don't do that if you're teaching children baseball, right? right, right <laughs> it's right. A, it's a different thing. But we do it all in public, so that's hard, and it's a hard thing for people to see. Um, people can get turned off on that, and I we do understand that, and we're we've worked really hard over the years to change that. But um, we are all adults. Um, some are high school kids <laughs> in this stuff too. Um, but just be, and no new person should ever be affected by that. And it's true. So we track who, who um, contributes to our community and about every single kernel version for this, the past, I don't know, four or five years, we have 200 new people every release. Wow. So, um, yeah. And so that's, we have a lot of people. That's just the new people every release. Um, and some people will stick around, some people won't, and that's fine. Some people drive by patch and that's wonderful. Well, we want to make sure it's really easy to get involved right. and that that one person, because you spend your first patch and you want to do it more. Right. We want to make it easy. So, yeah, it is critical. Um, but I also um, turn that around and say, have you read the email, the internal review comments at big companies, mm-hmm. Intel, IBM, things like that? These are, you never see what they say to each other. I've been in meetings at some big famous companies where people are crying and yelling at each people. You know, I mean, that's just the review. That's the culture of some of these companies. Um, we're doing it all in public, right? They're not right. doing it in public. <laughs> so right. it's a little different. Um, there's the infamous Steve Ballmer throwing chairs at managers, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, that's just people and, and management styles and whatnot. So we're not like that. And we're getting better. Um, we do have a code. Uh, we have a document that explains if you ever feel like you've been unfairly treated, how to handle this. Hmm. And we do have a resolution process for that, which is good. Which is great. That's a good segue into, I wanted to ask you about, what are your thoughts about new young people, not necessarily young, but at least interested people getting onto, uh, getting onto the kernel. There are like tons of websites that go at lengths about talking. What is your, in, in your opinion, what is the best recipe to get onto it? Uh, of course, it can be subjective, but what do you think has worked the most? So on the Colonel Newbies website, kernelnewbies.org, um, there's a how to write your first patch. And it explains it all. And the hard part about writing your first patch, your first change, is after you find something to do, and we have a whole list of things to do, um, is fixing your email client. Mm-hmm. Fixing your email client again. <laughs> sending an email and then fixing it again. Because <laughs> you get it wrong. It's just, it's just getting using the tools and um, figuring out how to write the metadata, like this is what I'm doing. Because writing the change log, you have to describe what your changes you're making. And that's hard to learn how to do. And it's usually more work than actually making the code changes. Mm. And sending it to the right people, we have tools. So learning that process is a step. Um, and that takes a little while. Um, so there's really good ways to do that. Kernel Newbies has a description in the driver's staging directory, which is why we keep this around. There's tons and tons of places to fix basic coding style issues. We have tools you can run saying, hey, this space is wrong. You need to fix this. And do that. It's a great place to start. People start by fixing spelling errors and comments in there um, and go from there. Um, we're getting really good at this. Um, we're really good at bringing people on board that way. We And I've been working really hard for the past couple of years to make sure that's good. There was the Lipta challenge, um, which mm-hmm. has stopped. I think I don't think it takes new people. Yeah. But that, that ran for a long time, and that worked out really well for a lot of people. There's still documentation. There's books and whatnot. So it's working good. I think the beginner tasks are working out really well. We have a hole, and there's no intermediate tasks. Right. So a lot of people finish the Elipto Challenge. They come up with other things. They're college professors. They have some spare time. What do we do? Finding something for them to do is hard Right. if they don't know what to do. 
some people joke, it's like saying, I want to write a book. Tell me how to write a book. It's, or what book should I write, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of hard. You, don't, you need to find an itch to scratch there. But it's also good to lay out a set of boundaries of, hey, here's a problem over here and do that. And I found that being at conferences, um, I'm doing that more and more. I'll hear something. I was in LinuxCon um, Japan. We were in the talk, and somebody said, you know, somebody should really do this to the self-test subsystem and do that. And I was sitting next to a, a college student um, at, a, at a thing, and he's like, you know anything new I can do? I was like, hey, you want to do this? And he did. Mm-hmm. He started submitting patches, and he, was, he came to Plumbers. He was, he was drinking with us last night, right? Yeah. Um, that's great. So he got involved in the community, found, he found some of that niche. Um, there's another person here who's giving a talk on um, how to get involved in the kernel process, but he was asking me what else to do. I was like, oh, well, I had this patch over here that I worked on for cleaning up some security stuff. I didn't have the time to finish it. Do you want to contribute or finish it up? He's like, yeah. Hmm. So pick it up. But we need those intermediate lists, and those intermediate lists, you can't just document because then they get done. Right. Right. <laughs> so they constantly change. Um, and that's a problem. I think as if you go work for somebody, which is great if you have beginning skills and you can go work for somebody, that's good. They'll give you that task mm-hmm. <laughs> to right. do. And um, that's a great way to get involved. Otherwise, finding your itch to scratch is hard. Um, Andrew Morton always says, make sure every hardware you have works perfectly on Linux. Hmm. And if it does, great. And if not, then work on it. Um, run the Linux next te- uh, kernel. I know a lot of people just run that. And then they get to see what breaks. That's what's going to happen next. Um, and fix that. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to start, too. Um, and then you can you find something that breaks. You can dig into it more. And you go for there. Or find an area that you're interested in and then join that mailing list. So you're interested in USB or interested in video for Linux. Join that mailing list and watch the patches go by. Read what's going on. And read patches and review it. And then ask questions if people submit something. If somebody submits something, don't ever think that they know what's right. You can always ask questions and you they should always be able to defend their choices. If not, then they shouldn't be submitting patches. Right? Right. And that's good. They should, code should be self-documenting that way. Um, it should be obvious what's going on because we should write good, clean code. We should. And, and there, are, <laughs> there are pretty clear guidelines about at least starting off with kernel coding guidelines. I know it's mostly style-based guidelines, but that still gets you in the mindset for writing good kernel code yeah. to begin with. Coding style rules are there for a reason. It's your brain. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what the coding style is as long as everybody follows the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because then your brain, they've proven this, the brain takes that metadata away, that indent style, whatnot, and you just see the logic behind it. And after you stare at it and you're used to that, and once you get used to it, fine. I'm switching between different projects with different coding styles is hard. It messes with your brain. Um, like I can never handle seeing the GNU coding style again. It's just, <laughs> it hurts. So I have to look at GLibc. But yeah, so coding style, we have the rules there. We've documented over the years all the stuff. It's We have a ton of documentation to read. Um, we have a ton of documentation on how to submit a patch, how to submit a revision to a patch, how to do all that stuff. It's all documented, yes. which is good. But we also don't, so the documentation is an area where we can never seem to fund a full-time person to do. And that's a hard thing. So we have a lot of meta, like John said, we have a lot of things around the kernel that we need people. We need to find a way to fund or have companies pony up money for, which is good. Over the years, we've funded documentation maintainers for like a year or half a year. And then the funding goes away because everybody's like, oh, it looks good enough now. So but it has to be constantly. It has to be constantly. Yeah, it has to be. And I mean, people aren't willing to work for nothing right. all the time. And it's good. And so I don't blame them. I don't work for nothing in a way either. So. Good set of guidelines to start off if somebody is interested. All right, so I want to switch gears a little and ask you some uh, preference-based questions. Okay. Okay, so what's your favorite editor? Why? 
<laughs> so first off, I want to say there's no such thing. I'm not going to do gatekeeping saying if you don't use this, you're not a kernel developer. I mean, that's that's rude. Um, in the free software and open source, we don't dictate use to other people. Right? right. I have preferences of what I have. I don't. I should never tell you what you can do. I noticed that I was sitting next to somebody in a talk, and they're running um, OS X, hmm. running a Mac laptop, doing Linux kernel development in a virtual machine, hmm. and it's fine. It works for them, right? I know somebody else. I know lots of people do Windows development. So what I do is what my personal preferences is. So don't say that you're less of a kernel developer or you can't be part of what we do because you don't do these things. That's rude. Right. Um, so okay. So favorite. I use Vim. I use Vi. Okay. What's your favorite hack? On VI? Um, so VI has a cool thing. So the Linux kernel coding styles is um, 80 columns. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't go over 80 columns. Everybody jokes, why don't we We have columns that go longer? Mm-hmm. It's actually there to keep your code readable. And if you're going too far over 80 columns, you should consider re- um, refactoring your code and make it simpler. Um, so there's a little macro I have that shows, when, if you ever go beyond 80 columns, it starts highlighting everything in bright red mm-hmm. on an inverted background. So it's like, stop that. <laughs> so mentally, it hits that and goes on that. That's that's the nice thing I have. And then it also has one that shows you trailing white space. Hmm. It highlights it automatically, so you shouldn't see trailing white space right. in your code. And um, otherwise, the coding-styled scripts will complain at you and whatnot. So that I can instantly make sure my code doesn't have. And that's good. So those are my cute little hacks I have. Now I think it's getting closer to the shortcuts that we were talking about earlier. Well, first of all, what's your favorite shell? Bash. I just use Bash. Okay. I keep trying the other ones, but uh, I'm stuck to Bash. <laughs> okay. And what's your favorite uh, shortcut or hack that you use in Bash? Oh. I'm or at least what you're most frequently using. Control R, mm-hmm. the searching back and start typing and searches backward through your history. Right. And then I also have something like to not duplicate your history in my Bash RC file or something. Yes. Anyway. Nice. Yeah. That's, I'm not doing anything fancy. Okay. So you mentioned earlier about like, uh, you know, you automate your workspace and uh, your environment. Can you go a little deeper into how you do things? So I, I use Mutt as my email client. Mm-hmm. Um, the the tagline of Mutt is all email clients are horrible. This one is the less, least horrible. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, and it is. It, it, Mutt is a huge learning curve um, if you're not used to it. Um, but it's it can handle email really, really well. Mm-hmm. Lots of email really fast, really well. And it can be scripted. So I have a lot of commands that like I'm looking at a patch in my email client. I can hit one key. It pipes that email out to a uh, scripts that cleans it up. You got to remove some metadata. Um, we'll apply it to trees. Um, then I can send it off and test it and whatnot and go from there. So you can pipe patches directly from MUT into different things. And I do that a lot. I um, copy um, patches around the different mailboxes and then apply them to kernel trees and then pass them off to testing things and go from there. I see. Um, so MUT is really, really good. And then so it's MUT combined with keystrokes that actually paste things into Vim, which then you save it and it goes out of there and it goes it continues on with another bash, horrible bash script and go on from there. I, I write really bad bash scripts. But <laughs> they're actually they're all public on they're on my GitHub page too. Oh okay. So it, it seems like if I send you a patch and say RFC or if it's uproot, mm-hmm. if it's act and so on by other developers, you would hit the shortcut and it would apply to various different kernel trees. So so say USB. Right, so I say, and I'll, okay, let's look at USB patches today. I have a USB Git tree mm-hmm. on kernel.org, and I have different branches depending on if your patch is to go to Linus's tree now because the bug fix, mm-hmm. or it's going to be in the next release because it's a new feature or something minor. So I work on either one at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'll say, okay, we're looking at new features or like a spelling fix. It's not critical now. I'll do it later. So then I go through, save all those to a mailbox. I'll use MUT and make sure they're all right. And then I just pipe that to Git and then 
that saves them, that send, applies them all to that tree. And then I have another script that pushes all them all out to kernel.org, and then we'll email you saying it's been applied. And then it goes through the kernel.org or the zero-day testing from Intel, and if it all applies, if it comes back good, I will then um, move it to a different branch, and then you get an email saying it's in, and then it goes from there. The scripts came from Andrew Morton a long time ago. So he wrote those, and I've hacked them up to pieces, and other maintainers have those as well. One thing, like John said, we need to, every little kernel subsystem is like a fiefdom. We don't have a unified way. I have people saying, well, how do I know if my patch has been applied or not? And I will send you an email. Other maintainers will not send you anything, and you have to just check their tree. And maybe we need to codify a few of those things because it is hard to tell for people. Uh, some people use Patchwork, like the networking maintainer uses Patchwork, which is actually a really good tool mm. combined with email. He can suck all the patches out, and you can see where your patch is in the review, if it's mm. accepted or not there. Oh, I see. But yeah, every email, every subsystem has a little fiefdom that way, which is interesting right. that way. But you should, I try and notify you that, and hopefully more and more subsystems will do the same thing. Hmm. I think the PM maintainer also uses patchwork. Uh, yeah, as you said, each one of them has their own way of uh, working. So it's, it's truly a sub-project under the bigger umbrella of Linux. It is. It's all these little tiny things. Now, we do cross trees sometimes, and it's hard. So there was a kernel development um, talk yesterday, and mm-hmm. one of them, Case Cook, he's a security stuff, and he has a difficult problem of... of changing things across everything in the kernel, all trees. Mm-hmm. And that gets difficult because it's either do you deal with all the little fiefdoms or do you just try and say one tree, I'm sending it everywhere, mm-hmm. and how do you manage that? Um, that gets more difficult when you have to do cross-tree. Unfortunately, um, we complain about it a lot because that's our pain point every once in a while, but we're out of, what, 2,000 developers every kernel, there's like four of us that have the problem. <laughs> so it's a, very min- it's a very minor thing in the grand scheme of things. Sometimes we set up trees, I'll set up a tree to do a, a tree-wide stuff for some driver stuff. Andrew Morton sometimes does it. Um, it can be done. It's sometimes painful. So we do have things. Again, next question. I think I know the answer, but what's your favorite source code management system? Git. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was there from the beginning. I used BitKeeper. Somebody once blamed me for getting Linus to use BitKeeper. I won't say I took that credit, but um, um, yeah, the distributed model of using Git is really good. What Larry McFoy showed us how to do with BitKeeper um, showed how to do the design work for Git. Right. And it works out really, really nicely. Um, I store lots of things in Git. Um, it works. Yeah. Really Perfect. Good. What's your favorite uh, Git hack or shortcut? Do you have aliases? I have aliases, yeah. Yes. So Git B, I just do I alias B to show branch um, all with context or something like that. That's mm-hmm. great. Git, uh, I have a shortcut for format patch because I give a bunch of options to format patch. I have something called G, oh, it's a three character one, which will show me a SHA and a shortened version with the short description of the patch that I can then paste into an email because that's how we pass around like descriptions of a patch. We don't pass and send you the full SHA. Mm. We send you a tiny little 12 character one. Um, Yeah, very basic Git hacks. I used to have a, a separate branch for Git because... Um, there's something in the way we, we made stable kernels that um, the tarring up would um, fail and be corrupted a little bit um, when we did signatures. Luckily, um, we don't have to worry about that kernel branch anymore, and we don't have that problem. So I, I'm back on main version, Git's version of Git. <laughs> okay, yeah. I see. So stable version of Git. Yeah. Okay, so the next one is slightly more generic, but still hack-related question. What's your favorite uh, productivity hack if you have any 
uh, I know we went over this earlier in terms of like, you know, how you manage time and so on. But it could be any, any scheme that you use in general that has helped you become more productive in your daily life. So uh, churning through email, I, I've learned that um, don't filter things out to different folders. Everything comes in the inbox, mm-hmm. except for Linux kernel mailing list. <laughs> so I, ma- some mailing lists go separately. Um, so everything in my inbox, I will churn through it first thing in the morning. And then if I have to do something with it, I leave it alone or I just file it away. And I move on to the next one. Do I have to do something with this? Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. And that makes it much easier. Then I can come back later in the day or later in the week for patches and go back and review all the USB ones. Or then, then you carve out the time to do that. But if you're constantly having to switch mental state between oh, serial ports, USB, this, 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 um, or just responding to a bug report, that's hard. So yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then go back and, okay, let's look at the bug reports. Let's respond to those. And then you're done. And then you can have a free afternoon, and then you can come back later. So when you file them away, you file them away separately based on their topics. So no, I, I, so all my all my patches that I have to do something with, I'll go into a to-do mailbox. Hmm. And I was like, I looked at it yesterday. I was like, woohoo, it's only 450 <laughs> mails long, and I think it's grown. I can go look at it now. It's probably 600 or something. Yeah, and then I'll wait a week, and then I'll, okay, and then in that mailbox, I'll start, all right, let's suck all the USB ones out. Go work on those. Suck all the staging ones out. Look at those. Hmm. But if you file it all away, then it's easier to come back to. I see. So does it make it easier in the sense that you put everything in the inbox, and then... You run through them based on whether you have to take action or not. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have to take action, if it's like a response, do you still consider them as action? If somebody's asking you a question. Oh, yeah. Those are, no, so those are simple ones. Those I will leave alone for now, the first pass, mm-hmm. and I'll come back and then do that the second pass. But then I respond, then I get it out of the box, inbox. Mm-hmm. Then I'll see that, like those patches that I know I have to go and review later, they're out of there, but they're in a saved box, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, if I have to respond to people, I will go through and respond. But after I do my first pass, of everything. I see. that's interesting because uh, of course it's all subjective. But totally, <laughs> a lot of people do the whole inbox zero and try to respond right I, away. So in a way, I'm, I'm. It just takes me two passes during that morning, right? Mm-hmm. And I try and do that. I try and I never. Every once in a while, I get the inbox zero. I do have things hanging out in there that's like, okay, I do have to respond to that eventually, or so long running threads with other things or oh I really need to write my father back he wrote me last week <laughs> things like that so um, things like that hmm. shifting gears a little now what do you think is the future of open source not just kernel until very recently I would say uh, well in, in internet years it's still years <laughs> back basically Linux kernel was the poster child for open source and the success that open source could bring in and so on but now you know there's an open source summit that does not even involve uh, Linux kernel directly because there's a separate uh, community for Linux kernel. We did. So we yes. had a whole bunch of technical talk. It, it's not in the name anymore because there's all sorts of other things going on. Okay. We're kind of buried and they're hidden, right? right <laughs> but they were right. there. The point is, you know, there are so many open source projects that seems like it's just exploding left, right, and center with GitHub. There is so many open source uh, projects that you can just uh, select and start uh, you know, send a pull request, start trying to help them, and so on. Some of the allegations are it's just an explosion, so it results in crappy code, then not uh, because it it becomes too hard to segregate good ones from the bad ones in terms of projects. So, what is your thought? Like, you know, is it what can we do to scale? Is it do you see any problems at all? Well, well some almost no projects have the problem of scaling like the kernel does. We have too many developers. We have not enough maintainers. We waste engineering time based on some of our processes. Um, 
That being said, there are, I mean, lots of really good success stories. I mean, Docker was one of the really big success stories in the beginning. Um, they had scaling problems. I helped them out with a little bit. Kubernetes right now, mm-hmm. great program, um, great project. I see a great future for that. And they had, they use GitHub, and it's scaling is hard with GitHub. Mm-hmm. Scaling a GitHub project, more than 10 developers starts hitting the wall really, really fast. Um, Kubernetes has um, adapted to that by scripting everything, lots of different repos, lots of bots, and they've done a really good job. Um, uh, what's the Rust has also hits uh, has done some good scaling things on how the way they handle their GitHub development. Um, but I mean, there's always been tons and tons of software projects out there, be they commercial or not. Most all projects now are open source, mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you have a need for something, it's easy to find it. I mean, one thing the neat thing about the Linux Foundation is it allows companies that want to work on a a problem area to do it in collaboration with other companies in a legally um, in an illegal way, because otherwise companies that are competitors aren't allowed to talk to each other. It's, right. it's collusion. So if you can work together at a, a neutral ground like the Linux Foundation, which legally has to be a trade organization for that very reason, so that companies can talk, um, they can do that in a way that's open source. Uh, they can contribute in a manner that works best for them. And it works out great. I mean, there's lots and lots of projects at the Linux Foundation for that. Um, and the, if you look at Kubernetes as one of the cloud Oh, I'm going to say the name wrong, and Dan's going to be mad at me. Whatever our cloud mm-hmm. <laughs> project is, um, but they also have other projects in there that are really good, um, and they're donated by companies, and then they're managed under that environment, and that's really good. And so there's yeah, there's open source stuff for everything that you can do these days, because it turns out that's the best way and method of engineering. Um, the, somebody once told me, um, I'm not, I'm most scared when I submit a patch to the Linux kernel because not that I because my name is on it. And it's um, afraid that I did something wrong, hmm. and that's good because you should. I mean, but if you're working in a company, you don't normally feel that way. Oh, I checked in, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's you're not necessarily doing your best work, right? When you're doing something in public, you you usually you learn to do your best work because that's your public face, mm-hmm. right? And that's great. So that produces an end result that's much better than you could have, mm. or you can get called out on the horrible hacks you do, right, right. and things like right. that. Um, if you get if people are watching, so um, that's good. So that's uh, the way of developing in a collaborative manner because you can't hire somebody. Said the most the smartest people are not working for your company, hmm. right? But they can all collaborate with you right now, right. and that's good. So that's why there are so many open source projects and there's so many good ones. Um, and like Kubernetes and Docker is they're lucky to have the scaling problem, and they realized they were lucky to have the scaling problem, yeah. and they attacked it and worked out. It. And the I, the Kubernetes team has done an amazing job. Okay. Uh, you know, that reminded of uh, something that, you know, there are two models for development. One is where the modern way is, you know, try a few things, keep testing. When you, when you come up with ideas, just try them out incrementally versus come up with your best possible code before you put up uh, put it up for review. So there's uh, Erlang's ways, I guess, the latter where, or any functional programming language kind of forces <laughs> you to. <laughs> yeah, you have to do it all at once, yes. Yeah. <laughs> When you're working in private on your private branch, uh, what's your method of attacking problem? Uh, do you do any incremental build-up work, uh, get the infrastructure ready, get any communication buses going, or uh, do you do your best to get the final version and then start you know, testing? So I wrote a, actually wrote a chapter in a book about how this, so the incremental development model produces the best end result mm-hmm. as long as you're getting feedback along the way. So in the kernel, in the Linux driver model, um, Pat Michelle and I had an idea of what we wanted to do, and we started tracking that. And But you had to do, for the Linux kernel, every single commit you make to the kernel has to build. You can't break anything. Right. Um, so you have to break down your work into logical tiny pieces. 
and you have to make it so that your change only does one type of thing. Um, so by virtue of that, other people can review that. And when we were starting to do that, some other developers, Alviro, saw that work, and he said, hey, I can take that work and make it applicable to even more of the kernel. And he revised it and made K objects, and we took over most of the kernel, and we unified it. And that was something we had never thought of. So by the virtue of us putting things out there in tiny pieces and doing extra work to do that, the end result was other people could collaborate, remix it, and help us that way. So it's a great development process. That being said, um, a lot of the times you don't know what you need to do, right? You know an end result. So when you're doing something big, a lot of times most people do on the kernel is you do a whole bunch of work, you hack it all together, and you get it working for yourself. And then you step back and say, okay, that's the end result I want to get to. How do I get there from today? Mm. So then I start breaking it up into tiny pieces and see if I can get the end result. What usually happens is your end result doesn't look like the end result, but you've made it something better. So then you submit 20 patches that does this. And by virtue of submitting 20 patches, people can say, hey, patches 1 through 5 are fine. I'll take them. And they merge those. Patch six and seven, you need some more work on, and the other ones we'll get to later. So you're like, great, somebody took part of my work. I can revise and revisit, and you go for there. And then the end result becomes even something better that you didn't didn't even remember. So it's um, And it takes more engineering time to do that. I say we waste engineers' time, but the end result pays off. That way, but so, but sometimes you need to know where you're going to go, <laughs> right? So you need to validate the idea. Okay, is this going to go? In the kernel development, we don't talk about ideas mm. really very vaguely. Will we ever say, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if we did something like this?" Mm. Um, code talks mm. because by implementing something, that's when you see if that would even work or not, mm. and then by breaking that into tinier pieces, you see if that even makes sense to do or not. Mm. So it's that incremental development process. Um, it seems like it takes you longer to get there, but in the end result, it usually is probably either the same or less, but your end result is even better. Hmm. And that's one reason open source has done really, really well, too. Right. So it kind of acts like an early filter if you actually try to break it up yourself and actually implement it before proposing a new idea. You would have gone through some of the obvious uh, problems that you would see right away. Yeah. And, yeah, so sometimes, yeah, so it's breaking things up into tiny pieces before you know where you're going to go mm-hmm. isn't, usually isn't a good idea. You're, people are like, what are you, you're like meandering, what are you doing here? And right. you can say, okay, here's my meta idea, but here's these 20 patches, look at the end result. But here's how, and here's how I got there. Mm-hmm. Like your old math professor would say, show your work on your problems for proofs. Right. That's when you need to show your work. <laughs> right, that's awesome. And also, you mentioned something about book that you read uh, that prescribed something. What are your favorite technical books that you go back to either reading or referring or refer to others, recommend um, to others? So when I first started programming out of college, I read a book called Code Complete, and that was amazing. Uh, it's a little bit dated. They revised it, but the ideas behind Code Complete are really good. It tells you um, the methodology of programming with, with scientific studies and the backgrounds of how you do things, why we do things like coding styles, why they matter on your mm-hmm. brain. I strongly recommend it. It's a little bit dated. But um, it's a good book. Um, and there's the other traditional, um, the Mythical Man Month right. book. Um, that still holds up pretty well on how you how projects run, how you can't just throw more people at a project and they'll do better. Um, we seem to have, with Linux, not necessarily proven that one isn't necessarily <laughs> true, but it is true. Mythical Man Month's a great one. Um, so those are good. Uh, Managing People, there's a book called Managing People by Michael Lopp, mm-hmm. who writes a really good blog. Um, when I had to start managing some people and developers, it talks about how to do that in a in a good way. Mm-hmm. And I really recommend that if you have to do that. Um, especially, actually, even dealing with open source because you're dealing with people. And people, like I said, are wet, squishy bags. Mm. They're not logical. You have to learn how to interact with people. Um, you can't just program in a corner and not talk to anybody. 
even if you work for companies, they don't usually like that. So knowing and understanding how your manager approaches things is good. It also is good to say, is my manager any good <laughs> or not? Uh, I've had managers over the years, I'm like, okay, what would so-and-so do? And I'll go do the opposite. <laughs> or so-and-so was amazing, you know, and the things like that um, because of those things. So those are really good ones. And then a fun technical book. Um, we happen to be talking about this last night. It's right. what, the Ugly Fish book. Uh, or Deep Sea Secrets. Deep Sea Secrets, yeah. It's called the Ugly Fish book because it has ugly fish <laughs> on the front cover. It's like bright orange yeah, or yellow. Yeah, bright orange and blue fish. Yeah, it's horrible. I remember reading that a long time ago, and that was one of the few books I saved. Um, it's if you The sea language, I use it every day for the past 20 years, but still finding crazy things in it. Um, but that book is amazingly yeah. fun, and it, it's good. I think they – did they update it? Some I'm not stuff? sure. I still have the same copy. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, that's a good book. It's a really easy read, and um, I strongly recommend that. Awesome. You mentioned a couple of blogs that you read often. Are there any any blogs or apart from, I guess, Linux Weekly? Yeah, Linux Weekly News is the best thing. I mean, so the Linux kernel mailing list is, what, four or 500 emails a day. The dirty secret is nobody reads it. Mm-hmm. We all filter it. Mm-hmm. Except maybe Andrew Morton. <laughs> he might read that all the time. We don't know. So uh, John and Jake and others there have done a really good job of reporting on the common issues that are going on in the community, what they're doing. Pay for the subscription. It's well worth it. Um, right. um, yeah, Linux Weekly News is great. Rands and Repose is Michael Lopp's thing for managing people. Um, the normal technical ones like Hacker News I'll get sucked into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, political News I try and stay away from, but that's a dumpster fire right now. Okay, so something slightly related to your mental model question again, uh, going back to that a bit, you use any known methodologies or any kind of uh, hacks like you know mind mapping or do you keep like notes of what you have to do over time because your your life is kind of driven by emails that yeah i'm really really event driven (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah being event driven is um i'm driven by my inbox what i save there or what i need to do for my to-do directory so i have being a maintainer and what i do is i don't have a lot of projects in which i do a lot of long-term work. Mm-hmm. Um, but so like Dave Miller said it best, um, maintainers are like editors. We used to be um, developers or we used to be a writer like that. If you're an editor, right. you're, you're tell other people what to do, change this here, modify this here and go on. And because we used to be a developer, we also have our little side projects, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a side project I did with Google for a while, doing the gray bus subsystem for those phones, for RF phones, um, which was fun. So I got to work on a project there and contribute new code. And now it's merged in the kernel, which actually need to, clean up some more too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all have our little side projects, which is fun. So you have a side project you can work on every once in a while. Um, so I have that. I have, a, I have a big, I have a big patch directory of patches I've, con- I've hacked up together and I need to actually clean up and get merged upstream. So the last kernel version I did, I cleaned up a bunch of those old ones and pushed mm-hmm. them upstream. Um, so yeah, but I don't have anything like mind maps. I know people that swear by those things that are coming up with new ideas and things like that. Our notes, um, I have a to-do file that is usually out of date. <laughs> but um, no, I don't. I'm email, email inbox-driven. Okay. You know, you're debugging something. What would your methodology be? There's rubber ducking where you just talk out. <laughs> yeah, rubber ducking is awesome. <laughs> it's good, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, it's you, you talk, you explain the problem to a rubber ducky that's sitting on your, on your desk right. and, and you explain it. It's, it's best when like you have children that come and say, I have this problem, like what is it? And they start saying it out loud and they're like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, rubber ducking is good, um, but uh, code, you usually try and step back and see what is the problem, and then that's just debugging methodology, how you debug things like that. And the kernel now has really, really good debug capabilities, of which usually I don't use because I don't remember that's there. <laughs> and I default to printk, but ftrace is there, is really good, and there's mm-hmm. perf is good for finding performance issues, and seeing where the code is actually spending time. Right. And then 
you default to printk. Right. <laughs> but your virtual machines are good. Usually since I'm using doing work on drivers, I need to talk to hardware, so I can't use a virtual machine, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So crash the laptop. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see what that is. Okay, did it boot? No. All right, let's try this one. Oh, did it boot? Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> Go on from there. Yes, rubber docking is awesome. I've talked to some many other developers before, and everybody basically eventually did a version of it, wooden technology right away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you mentioned wouldn't crash your laptop. I forgot to ask you what is what is your favorite? What is your current setup, and what is your favorite thing about it? So I, I now live in France, um, and I've lived there, so I don't have a, access to a big workstation anymore. I didn't travel with that, so I have a, a really really good Dell, um, one of the Dell XP thirteen laptops. Um, and I love the keyboard. Um, I have two of them now. Dell was very nice and gave me another one. Um, so I use that as my main one. I didn't bring it this time because I have a 10-year laptop. I had to buy a ZenBook, um, Asus ZenBook, and when I was in Japan for my Dell, power mm. supply blew up. Um, and this thing's USB-C only, which is actually really good for some development. Mm. It's USB-C only, so it can handle power charging. Oh. And does some cool stuff. Nice. So it's, it's nice that way. Um, yeah, so I work off of laptops. Um, that's my development system. I have a mouse, USB hubs, and fun things like that. Mm. Um, so a couple laptops on my desk, <laughs> and that's it. I have a build server mm. um, to do heavy builds, to do the stable kernel builds that I run build stuff through. It'll email me back whether it succeeded or not, what the results were. Right. Just before we started talking, you just fired off like four or five stable kernel builds, and yeah. that was like a build server. Okay. No, 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 I had done those. Those all succeeded, but then I like to keep the copy on my local laptop up to date. So I had done a release and it had changed some core header files. So wow. I had to rebuild the whole kernel, right? Wow. And I do make all mod config. So I build everything into the kernel because I want to make sure I get good code coverage first when I do stable patches applying, make sure that they don't break the build. Mm-hmm. So I just build it and it takes like, I don't know, 45 minutes to do it. It's not a very powerful little laptop. Right. <laughs> and making all config is really bad. And so my build server will do that same thing in uh, 500 seconds. <laughs> so. All right. So if, if you had a choice, let's say, Forget all the practical limitations. What would your dream setup be? A dream setup. So I have a oh, I have a real keyboard. I have a keyboard with mechanical keys yeah. I, at home. I have that. So good keyboard, a good Philco keyboard with some good keys. That good. I have a bad habit of buying keyboards when I travel to Asia. Mm. I have my favorite keyboard store in Japan and in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. <laughs> so nice. I end up buying too many keyboards. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so real keyboard um, on a laptop would be nice. Um, that being said, the Dell keyboard isn't that bad. Mm. Um, this little clicky thing isn't that good. Mm-hmm. My ideal setup is, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty happy with what I have. Linux running runs really has run on my desktop for decades, right? So uh, I don't have anything really to change. Good laptop, good resolution monitor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you keep up with splitting its kernel on your setup? Yeah, so I always run. So um, I don't. Here's a dirty secret: I maintain the stable kernel trees. Mm-hmm. I never run them. <laughs> I'm running, um, usually it's Linus's tree mm-hmm. plus my patches um, from one of my subsystems. I usually run the USB subsystem okay, because so, I want to make sure that works. Right. So that's the tree I'm running. So I'm running Linus's stuff. Now, actually running uh, during this merge window, I don't always run the intermediate steps on the merge window. I definitely sync every RC release. Um, actually, I think I did build a middle tree right mm-hmm. now because I was testing something else out. Um, so yeah, so I've always run latest stuff on my laptops. I do have the LTS, uh, the stable kernels on there to default back to to make sure it does boot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I will test boot them. But yeah, it's really funny. Everybody else runs the stable kernels except the person who maintains the stable <laughs> kernels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Uh, <laughs> what does your typical day look like? So I work from home. I'm lucky. Um, when my son was much younger, he said, like, school day. Oh, my dad doesn't have a job. He just does email. 
<laughs> um, I get to stay in my pajamas. Um, so um, the Linux Foundation does have a you must have you must shower by noon, and Lena said he doesn't abide by it, and I don't abide by it. Sometimes mm-hmm. my wife is like, "When did you last shower?" Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I wake up, do email, and yeah, just I in the morning I'll clean through everything I have, mm-hmm. and then I'll go back and like, okay, am I doing stable stuff right now? I try and get through the stable patches every other day. I do a stable release at least once a week, so that involves process of that. Um, I do that much. That's usually the first thing I do as far as if I need to do that that day. And then I'll go do other code review and then that's usually the whole day. <laughs> it's just, it's a lot of email. Um, and then every once in a while I'll carve out some time. Oh, look, I got an afternoon. Let's take those old patches I had and mm. clean them up. Okay. Uh, do you have any personal habits outside of your work schedule? Oh, I work out. Yeah. I've been actually, I've been boxing for the past six months. I joined a boxing gym with my daughter. And so we're actually graduated up to uh, doing it in the ring. And right before I came, uh, she smacked me in the nose <laughs> so hard. <laughs> um, she got mad. We weren't supposed to be hitting in the face. And uh, she got mad. <laughs> She's 20. Uh, I don't blame her for that. The instructor died laughing. <laughs> so, so I've been boxing. So that's my workout. Usually end of the day? I know. I try and do it in the morning because I want to work out first in the morning before that. <laughs> and then, yeah. And is there like the number of times you do per week? Or? Uh, like twice, like, two, three, two, three times a week. Okay. Bingo, yeah. And even when you're traveling? And when I'm traveling, no. <laughs> I try and bring shoes to run or something like that. Um, depends on, with the jet lag, I'm usually bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I have sneakers I haven't run this week. <laughs> I need to. Um, yeah, exercise is really, uh, really important for your mental health. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. I've learned that over the years. My wife's taught me that over the years. And I need, yeah, I need to do that. If I travel for more than a week, I definitely have to work. Yeah, and you also <laughs> seem to travel like crazy. I try and, I try and eat better. I, I was vegetarian for tw- over 20 years. Um, moving to France has made it hard to be a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reasons I became vegetarian went away when I went to France as far as how they treat animals and meat. Mm-hmm. So I do eat more meat over in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but traveling, I try and stay vegetarian. Unless in Asia, they have some good stuff. Right. Yeah, now you try and get some sleep. Don't drink too much. Mm-hmm. Um, try and stay healthy because, you know, you only got one body. Right. And also, given the amount of workload that you seem to handle, you know, I guess keeping healthy is, is almost mandatory. Yeah. But, oh, and I travel a lot. Yeah. So I did hit 100,000 miles on my flight here. So I guess I don't have wow. to I don't have to travel anymore, but yeah, I will. Is that yeah. one of those platinum status? Yeah. So as long as I get that every year, you're good. Because then you, yeah, it's like you reach a point of like, oh, then it becomes, then they'll give you the upgrades. So it's mm-hmm. more comfortable. Then you have to travel. So it's like a vicious little cycle. Yeah. <laughs> one thing is like one thing I've noticed about your email responses on the mailing lists. You seem to always have this bent of mind for helping out, and you're super patient with newbies, at least <laughs> with the questions on newbies, and so much so that you know even the non-longtime kernel developers get irked with some of the questions. That has good documentation, <laughs> everything is there, but people don't do enough research or whatever, whatever the reasons are. You stay calm, and you seem to respond pretty well. <laughs> Uh, do you, uh, surprisingly, I've never seen you curse on any of the emails, which is shocking. Uh, at least not in the public emails. Uh, so somebody did a paper, some weird paper about they took um, like Linus's emails over the past five years and my emails and they ran them through some mapping software and mm-hmm. say where the curse words were. Mm-hmm. And like Linus had all the curse words and I had a small, a small number. And then they were like trying to see if you fed it at random email, would it be Greg's or Linus's? And mm-hmm. it was like, okay, it was based on curse words. Was mm-hmm. the next thing. So yeah, I don't, I try not to curse in public. <laughs> so is that a conscious choice or are you just a nice person in general? I, I can't answer that if I'm not a nice person <laughs> in general. I let other people answer that. Um, I don't normally curse. That's just me. I try and be nice. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, am pa- I try and be patient. A, lot, a really good 
habit. And here's a neat trick. If you do have a bad or email you want to write, back, you write that nasty email. You write that and then you delete it mm. and you got it out of your system mm. and then you can come back and write your, okay, here's my second one. <laughs> okay, nice. That's a good trick. No, that's, a, that's a nice trick. I've learned that over the years. And um, also never email while drunk. <laughs> you can read email while drunk. Don't write email while drunk. Mm. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, my wife taught me that very early. <laughs> so that way because your patience is gone. Um, no, you just... I don't know. I um for a while in college, I was an elementary education major to teach kids. Mm. So maybe my background, I want to see, I want to encourage things through that way. Um, raising my kids, try it's much it works much better. Like the attachment parent method of praise versus the stick, it works out better in the long run. That's just the way I approach things. Linus gets mad at me for being too nice, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and that's I mean that's a fair enough criticism. And, and part of being maintainers, you have to say no. Um, it's hard to say no to mm. people. Um, you do have to say no explicitly sometimes because you don't want to string people along. Mm. And we have had cases where if I reject your patch, you think, all right, criticize in some way, you, you take that as the, oh, you, the idea is okay, let me go fix it and come back again. <clears throat> so sometimes through email, you have to be harsh and say, no, stop it. This is what you need to do. And Linus does that very well mm. yeah. <laughs> and says that. And he's had to learn that. He's said over the years that way too. Um, I need to do that better. Uh, there's one subsystem right now with one maintainer that I do have to be better because I feel like he's spinning his wheels a lot and I just have to say, stop it. Mm -hmm. This idea isn't okay. <laughs> Go back and do this in a different way. Um, I do do it at times. Um, I do have a very tiny kill file mm -hmm. <laughs> that of email. That kill file is the old style. Of, I won't ever see the email if you send it to me for that person. Mm -hmm. um, usually those are people... Well, they are people who submit patches that aren't any good. Um, they're just like cleanup patches. They should be doing more than just cleanup patches, and they don't take any feedback. Mm. So I know if I actually review them or say something, they won't actually change. Mm. And that is like you just have to part – of, part of existing is knowing who to ignore. Mm. And that, that's a healthy thing too. Yeah, <laughs> right? for sure. Yeah, yeah. But it's also actually – it's a trick also for people coming into kernel communities. You have to learn – who who reviews your patches to pay attention to and who not to pay attention to. Because we have some people on the mailing list, you don't want to do what they told you to do. Right. <laughs> and that's hard to learn who those people are sometimes. We don't have, we don't. We used to have the problem a long time ago. We used to have somebody um, that always responded on the mailing list and we 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 think it was a joke because hmm. he was always responding in ways that <laughs> it, would, it would sound right, but a little bit would be wrong. And we called him the wrong bot. <laughs> um, but it was, it, we, I don't know if it really was a real person or it was just a kernel developer having fun at the times. But um, you had to not pay attention to that person. <laughs> and he had to learn not to pay attention to that because he could troll you that way. Um, so, yeah, learning to, who to ignore and who to respond to is also key. So you might see the people, I want to encourage people who are putting things out there, doing stuff and so they can do more. I don't want to encourage people who aren't doing good stuff. But, so, uh, yeah. You don't see all the emails I delete and don't respond to. Uh, right. <laughs> but you said private email. So one thing about kernel development is um, I, if you email me privately, um, you'll get a little bot I have that um, says email in public. Because emailing maintainers individually doesn't scale. Mm. I have a public mailing list. Um, if you have a USB question, mail the, mail the USB mailing list. As there's four or five developers on there, mm. it scales every. It works much better. Right. And that, and everybody can see that and work there. So private emails and kernel development doesn't work. Hmm. So if you send me a, a private email with a question, 
you get my bot and tells you where to go. And also, there's a whole bunch of it's actually grown. And my bot is very the description is very long of why you shouldn't do this, where you should go, things mm-hmm. like that. So my bot is friendly. No, it doesn't curse. No. Okay. I don't normally curse. So if my kids hear me curse, they know something's really bad. Well. <laughs> so it's just actually good. So just- yeah, so use it judiciously, right? So right. I will. Um, the other people who curse all the time, it just is natural. Then right. you don't necessarily get it. Right. Right. When, when you do it, it means something. Exactly. So when my kids hear that, they know they're in trouble. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Something's wrong. That's a good way. Uh, I should learn that. <laughs> <laughs> this could be regarded as a controversial topic because it's very, uh, very polarizing in some ways. Uh, diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in technology, it's not, and, it shouldn't be a it should not be controversial. Yes, but <laughs> it has it has uh, if not if not controversial, it has been a topic of uh, he, heated debate and heated uh, discussion of late, especially. But uh, let's stick to Linux kernel community. I know you you mentioned about the outreachy program mm-hmm. earlier. What are the other avenues that uh, as a community we could explore to increase diversity organically? And what what are your thoughts about it? Well, first off, so diversity. A society is better off the more diverse it is. Mm-hmm. It's scientifically proven. It's better that way. So it has to work that way. If you want your society or your culture or whatever to survive, you have to accept and be acceptance of others of different backgrounds, ethnicities, everything. That's the only way it works. So right. that you have to do that. So there shouldn't be a discussion right. about that. And you don't have, and you can't be tolerant of intolerant people. That will destroy your community because that, that is not an acceptable thing. So that's the only thing you're allowed to be intolerant of intolerant people. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so in the kernel, I mean, I've worked a long time for outreach. It used to be, um, that's a great way to get people involved. Um, I will say that the the people I have mentored in there have gone on to do really, really good things. Uh, it's changed our lives in ways. Um, one person is on the kernel team at Oracle now. One person on the kernel team at um, ARM. Hmm. They're amazing women that do really, really good work. Um, I've been working with Google Summer Code since the very beginning. I usually mentor one student, at least one student every year. If there's a good project, um, those kids have come on and they're now working for companies and contributing to kernel um don't be accepting of everybody that way um the kernel i mean people joke about the metrocity or metrocracy of develop kernel development because nobody knows who you are Mm -hmm. we have we've proven that so a long time ago we had um somebody submitted patches for the plug and play Mm -hmm. Subsystem, and we were worried about Microsoft contributing code at the time, a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. So I made them prove where they were. Where'd, the, where'd you get this knowledge? Where'd you figure this out? And they showed all the public places they were and contributed code, and it worked out great. And so he became a maintainer of the plug and play subsystem. And then, like two years later, he got invited to the Kernel Summit, which was every year. It was held in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and he was American. And um, he showed up, and his mother had to come because he was in high school, mm-hmm. he was a minor. We had no idea. Wow. <laughs> and um, so that was, so here was a, he was 15 or 16 when he started contributing to the kernel and we had no idea. Mm. And that's good. And, and that, I really appreciate that. And that, that's um, proof that would, we can do that. And then he went on to MIT and now he's a professor at Stanford. Oh. <laughs> so he's done great work since then. Um, I haven't actually heard from him in a couple of years, but he's doing good stuff. Yeah, so you can contribute to projects. The internet is very good for that. Mm-hmm. And people don't know who you are and that should be, that should be fine. So, I'm always looking to try and get more and more people involved in our community because I know that's the only way you can survive. I mean, I've been looking at our numbers, so the only thing, and I say this a lot, that can stop Linux is if we mess it up because mm. we're going faster than everybody else. Nobody can keep up with us. Everybody else has agreed that. It's the only thing that's going to stop us if we, we mess it up. Mm. 
So what do we do? So that's my worry of what are we doing? Something wrong. So increasing the diversity is very important to make sure we survive, bringing new people in, retain the people we have, don't burn them out, all those type of things. That's the important stuff. So, no. Um, but no, yeah, so, but no, so it shouldn't be an issue. I mean, diversity, it has to happen. If you want to survive. If you don't want to survive, right. great. <laughs> Go be one type of people and be an echo chamber, and that doesn't work. Mm. So that's, and then interesting thing about Linux and why we have succeeded is because we've adapted the ideas and methodologies of everything. Mm. So, I mean, one thing, um, our point to power management, years and years ago, the embedded group came to us and said, we need better power management. We have to handle these small devices and batteries. We really care about this. And it's only, oh, we're the only one that matter about this. And then we said, no, make it work for everybody. Hmm. And they said, like, yeah, we got to do more work. Came back, got it working for everybody. It turns out the supercomputers really care about power management when you have billions of dollars in power bills. <laughs> so Linux works awesome on all the hardware because we make it applicable to everything. But it's the different groups approaching you know, different unique problems. And, they, and everybody thinks their little problem is special and unique, but they're special and unique like everybody else. Because hmm. it turns out everybody's stuff influences everybody else's. Hmm. And it by contributing your little bit that is only unique to you, which matters. Everybody contributes to Linux in a very selfish way because you want to solve your problem. That's great. But it turns out other people have the same problem. So they can build on that and make something better. Right. And that's why we've grown because we are accepting of other things and other ideas. Yes. And we work together. And that's and it's proof that that works. Yes. There's a diversity at different levels, uh, at ideologies, methodologies. Totally. Problems that you're trying to solve, your background. Yes, absolutely. Linux over time has proven to be like most probably one of the most accepting software teams or communities of diversity. As long as your thoughts are, are, are right, it's completely accepting. So even thoughts are right. So an interesting thing about Linus and I hope about me and others is we can we admit when we're wrong. Hmm. So we can be proven wrong. And Linus is amazing at this. If you can if you think you're wrong and he says no or you push back on or I say something, push back. And we are hopefully open-minded enough to change. And I've been proven time wrong, or proven wrong time and time again, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me. Linus changes his mind all the time, and he's and that's fine, and that's good, and that shows acceptance about our ideas that we can change your mind when presented with the facts or ideas. And sometimes, like I will give an example, the driver core, um, the way we worked, we would never when you bind a driver to a device, mm -hmm. we never actually told user space about that. At that point in time when those things came together, so you could actually create files in SysFS magically just show up. You would never know that. And I just assumed that was the right way to do it. It's been that way for a decade. So Dimitri, who is a maintainer of the input subsystem, has been complaining about it forever. He sent patches, and I was always like, no, 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 it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And he kept at it. He's like, no, here's why. And then I was like, and I sat and thought about it for a long time and came back and said, okay, you're right. <laughs> and it took, and now it's like, and it's just accidentally solved a whole bunch of class of problems that I had been ignoring. <laughs> oh, nice. So that's good. So I can, I was definitely wrong. I said, hey, you're right. I'll mm -hmm. take this stuff. I see. Is that uh, to do with the ref uh, objects uh, in notifying? So now we notify, yeah. So now we notify, we will send a notification of um, K object bind and unbind. I don't know what we actually called them. Mm -hmm. But so when the two things are bound or when they, when the driver goes away from the device, right. we also let them know. Right. And actually, we found a bug in user space by doing that, too, mm, nice. <laughs> um, the way it was happening, which we had to work around the kernel because <laughs> we won't want to break user space. Um, but yeah, so we're now now user space will know at the moment in time when we do match those things together. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, awesome. So uh, I think we're coming close to an end. Uh, do you have any uh, parting uh, thoughts for the 
for the episode? <laughs> I have talked a lot. No, I can't think of anything. Okay, awesome. <laughs> It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so Fun. much for sharing your time. Good. Uh, and uh, we look forward to bugging you more on the mailing list. Please do. In the future. That's awesome. Great. Thank All you right. so much, guys. Thank you.